Paul closes out Philippians chapter 1 with an exhortation. He encourages the believers there in Philippi to stand fast in one spirit and with one mind to strive together for the faith. Because the Apostle Paul knew there was likely a persecution of Christians brewing on the horizon. Philippians 1 verse 29, he even says, that he even promises, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not just to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. Paul knew, with a persecution brewing, how critically important it would be for this little church to stand unified in both purpose and mission. The reality is that Christianity is not designed to be a Jesus and me versus the world kind of proposition. Keep in mind that while Jesus may have saved you from the sin of this world, he left you in this world of sin. And not only that, but until Jesus finally calls you home, the scriptures are clear that you've been given a mission to accomplish. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, Jesus said, Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And while that task is admittedly dawning, and if we're honest, a bit intimidating, before ascending to heaven, Jesus did leave us with an encouraging promise. He gave us a mission, but he left us with a promise. He says, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Now the question begs concerning this promise. If the Bible tells us that Jesus, this morning, is physically at the right hand of the Father, Acts 2, verse 33, where he's presently acting as your high priest, Hebrews 4, 14 through 15, your mediator, 1 Timothy 2, 5, and your advocate, 1 John 2, 1. If Jesus left earth promising, John 14, 2 through 3, to prepare a place for you before his return, then the question, how is Jesus with you always? Because that's what he said. Now, though few speak of this, the reality is that Jesus, this morning while in heaven, is still with you in three distinct and very different ways. First, there is the personal experience of Jesus' presence in your life through the written word of God. Aside from the testimony of John 1, explaining that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, most notably in Revelation 19, verse 13. As Jesus comes back to earth in glory and power, you know the name that's given? It's simple. It's not Jesus. The name given is literally the Word of God. Jesus reveals himself. You connect with Jesus through his Word. A lot of you have been doing that, been encountering Jesus, been experiencing interactions with him through his word because you come here on Sunday mornings and you didn't even know it. This is why in Hebrews 4 verse 12, we're told that the word of God is living and powerful. It's alive. How is it alive? Because you find Jesus in it. And then in 1 Peter 1 23, we're told that the word of God lives and it abides forever. Jesus is known, friend, by his word which is why the best thing that I can do for you as your pastor is teach you the word. Secondly, there is the internal existence of Jesus's presence in your life through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In both Romans chapter 8, 
1 Peter 1, as well as Philippians 1, verse 19. The Holy Spirit is referred to often as being the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Upon salvation, the very person and nature of Jesus takes up residency within your heart, within your life, through the Spirit of the living God. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27, the Lord promises, quote, I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. In Romans 8, verse 9, Paul mixes no words when he writes, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So you have the Word, and you have His Spirit. But finally, there is the external existence of Jesus' presence in your life through the church. Most interestingly, in 1 Corinthians 12, as well as Ephesians 4. This community of crazy, unique, dysfunctional people. Look around, you. Do you know what the Bible describes you as being? Literally, the body of Christ. Like what this means is that Jesus is presently with you, as he promised, and that his spirit indwells the people around you. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. The implications of this incredible reality is that our interactions with one another should be motivated by and seen as being representative of whose activity? Jesus' activity in our midst. It's why... This morning we even sang, I had no idea, Andy and I did not coordinate this, but we sang the actual prayer of an old saint, Francis of Assisi, that Jesus would what? Make of me, what? Your hands and feet. I want to be to the people around me who you want me to be to the people around me. So back to the question. How is Jesus with you always? Personally, his presence manifests through his word. Internally, his presence manifests through his spirit and dwelling. But then externally, his presence manifests in your life. And this is the point. Jesus' presence in your life manifests through other believers. This is why Christian fellowship is so essential to Christian effectiveness. And why the enemy wants nothing more than to remove you from such interactions. Because Jesus' presence in my life manifests through my interactions with you. To not have you would be to put me in serious jeopardy, serious risk. The greatest danger I can face as a believer is when or if I grow distant from my church family. Have you ever noticed... That in the midst of struggle, trial, tribulation, your natural incl inclination is to pull away from relational connections. Like it's something that just kind of happens naturally. Have you, have you ever experienced that? I know I have. Like in these times, these seasons, aside from church, you detach from friends, you take a break, right? I'm not leaving the church. I'm just taking a break from church. 
you separate. And yet, please know that this is the absolutely worst thing you can possibly do. Friend, there is a real enemy in this world that the Bible says is seeking to, quote, like a thief, steal from you, kill you, and destroy your life. John 10.10. And this devil is, quote, an adversary, walking about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5.8. And it's because of this that there is a real enemy, that there is safety in numbers. There's safety in a church community. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 4, verses 4 through 12, he says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how does one stay warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And then he says, and a threefold gourd? Well, that's not quickly broken. This family that we have in Christ, the church, this community, exists to provide strength in the midst of crippling weakness. Renewed power when we're completely tapped out. Resolve when you're ready to quit. Fresh hope in overwhelming depression. Faith when you're filled with doubt. A peaceful presence in the midst of a brewing storm. Rejuvenating joy when you're completely overcome with a debilitating sorrow. What we need in moments of suffering and trial and tribulation is a shining light when our path is filled with darkness, hands to lift up arms that can no longer endure, encouragement to press forward when we can go no further, a kind word that turns away wrath. What we need is unconditional love in the place of hate, a listening ear instead of counsel, the demonstration of grace when all this world does is judge. What we need is friends willing to join us in the foxhole when we're taking fire from a surrounding enemy. Whether it be a more systematic religious persecution that may arise, like in Philippi, a trial that might be specific to you, or a personal season of tribulation, it is a truth that in these times of suffering, you need more than anything else the presence of Jesus made real in your life through, yes, the indwelling of His Spirit, His Word, but also the external manifestation of Jesus' presence through your interactions with brothers and sisters. And if you're like, well, I'm not in such a season, you need to be here for someone who is. Because guess what? There will come a time you will be. All we ask is one and a half hours a week. That's it. Now, hey, it would be great if you came to the men's events or the women's events. That's cool. But we put everything into one and a half hours. That's all we ask. That's the first half of the Georgia game. But the benefit that will be yielded in your life when you make that a priority, it can't be measured because you're physically interacting with Jesus through each other. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This life isn't a go-it-alone proposition. Jesus is like, I'm going to heaven to prepare a place. I'm going to fill you with my spirit and those around you with my spirit. 
when you need it. You see, it's for this reason that Paul knew that a growing disunity within the church leading to the division of Christians, it was terrible. He had to exhort against it because it's the chief tactic of the enemy. Divide and conquer. See, there was no way these Philippians would be able to withstand if they didn't stand unified. And the same is true for Calvary 316. Well, verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, so building on these thoughts, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now let's break down the particulars of these verses before we set them in the context of the larger flow of Paul's point. He begins, if there is any consolation in Christ, or literally, have you ever been consoled? He's asking a question. Have you ever been consoled by, by Jesus? In, in the Greek, this word consolation, it's parakletus. It, it presents the idea of not just like a soothing tenderness, but of strength. It's a, it's a comfort to make strong. It's a consolation that manifests in an inner resolve. Paul continues, if there is any comfort of love. In the Greek, this word comfort, it's actually a noun, and it describes the encouragement that's yielded from the love or the agape of God. It's as though Paul is asking these Philippians, have you ever been consoled by Christ? strengthened by Christ, but have you ever been, been encouraged by God's unconditional love? He says, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, we've mentioned this before, but we'll reiterate it in case you're new. The word fellowship here is koinonia. Fellowship is a term we throw around in Christian communities. The, the, the better translation would be partnership. It's something deep and personal. And this series of rhetorical questions, Paul then asks these Philippians, have you been encouraged by his love? Have you been consoled in Jesus' strength? Have you ever relied on the influence of the Holy Spirit? If there is any affection and mercy. King James Version, the old King James Version, translates this word affection as bowels. Bowels spoke of the seat of one's core desires. The word mercy here would be better translated as compassion. Your pain in my heart. Paul is asking if all of these things had yielded a heart to demonstrate compassion. The implication of these rhetorical questions was to hammer home a truth that Christ should indeed be manifesting through their lives in such a way. The overwhelming answer as the church is reading through them, they should all be nodding. Yes, obviously, we've experienced the strength yielded by Jesus, his love, his spirit. No doubt our passion is compassion. This is why Paul then transitions. He says, because the answer is yes, obviously, well then fulfill my joy. By now, being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Though Paul is not saying that there isn't room for a difference of opinion within a church body, or that in some way we all need to be monolithic in beliefs and best practices. The apostle is making it clear, though, what? That having the same love, 
Not a love we demonstrate to God, but a love that he's demonstrated to us. Something that we've been given, something that we possess. Now, having the same love, you see, that reality should be more than enough to unify a community of believers because it's the one truth that should transcend anything else that would ever yield a division. Jesus, his grace, his love on the cross. You see, we can disagree about eschatology when Jesus is going to return. We can wrestle over the best way we should handle church finances. Shoot, we can battle it out over what colors we're going to put in the bathroom. But in the end, since we have the cross in common, his grace and his love, how can we divide over such trivial and trite matters? It's almost as though Paul's exhortation for unity is to keep the main thing the main thing. Now, since unity is the desired goal and the logical manifestation of Jesus' love demonstrated to each of us individually, Paul now continues in verses 3 and 4 by explaining how we maintain this unity. One accord, togetherness. He says, verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. It's kind of the last text you want to come to church and hear, you know? I mean, that's a tough one. That's a tough pill to swallow. That is quite an exhortation. Now, first and foremost, Paul, he issues this challenging statement. Jumps right into it. Let nothing. What does that mean? Let nothing. That's what it means. Be done through selfish ambition or conceit. This Greek word that Paul uses for selfish ambition, it's It's interesting. The word actually means electioneering. It was a political term. And it described a partisan action whereby a person deliberately courts distinctions for the purposes of self-promotion or putting oneself forward. I know that's kind of a foreign idea in our political system, right? You know, dividing to get ahead. No one does that these days. You know, aside from this, the old King James Version, this word conceit. I love the way it is in the old English. It's literally vainglory. The word, it describes a groundless and empty pride. Like the idea behind the word is thinking too much of oneself or having, better stated, an erroneous estimation of one's standing and importance. Don't act in such a way that you're dividing for self-promotion or that you're acting because you've lost sight of who you actually are. That's what he's saying. Keep in mind that the greatest foe to unity within a church community is selfishness. It's same with a marriage or any unit. For it's impossible to be others-focused if you're me-centered. You see, in order for unity to be achieved and then maintained in a church, everyone has to resist the desire, the inclination to act selfishly or in conceit. 
pride. Paul is clear. Let nothing be done through these type of motivations if you want unity. You see, we must all resist the exaltation of self. And we must always keep an appropriate view of self in mind. In contrast to selfish ambition and conceit, Paul then encourages the motivations for their actions. Note the contrast. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but, what does he say? Act in a lowliness of mind. In the Greek, this word implies, this phrase implies, having a correct opinion of oneself. It's a contrast. Or, or acting with a deep sense of one's moral littleness. Like in our, in our modern vernacular, you would just translate this word as to act humbly or in humility. Now, we, we misunderstand humility. Like humility is not the belittling of oneself. It's not a woe is me type of mentality. The idea behind humility or lowliness in mind is simply to have an accurate understanding of who you are. Pride is having an inaccurate understanding of who you are, which is why God resists you. He resists you so you'll see yourself as you are. But he gives grace to the humble or the person who recognizes that what? Apart from Jesus, I am in deep trouble. Like I know that apart from Jesus, his love and his grace, I'm capable of all kinds of terrible things and very few good ones. So how can I have a, a haughty estimation of self if I know what self really is? It's been reckoned dead. It's pointless. It's worthless. The best I can do, the Bible says, is as is, is, is ugly rags, as dirty rags. I have no rightness in me. And you see, it's only when, the, it's only when you have such a perspective this lowliness of mind, this accurate understanding of self, that what happens? You'll be able to esteem others better than yourselves by what? Looking out not only for your own interests, but also the interests of others. And keep in mind, Paul is not saying that you can't look out for your own interests. He doesn't say that, does he? He says that you look out for others' interests also. And he, and he compares this. Your interests, also others' interests. The word also is what's key. It means equal to. He's saying esteem others' interests equal to that of your own. Like care for others like you would want to be cared for. It's as simple as that. You see, in a sense, what Paul is encouraging these Philippians to do for the high purposes of maintaining unity within the church so that they could endure the suffering that was sure to arise was the simple rejection of self-consumption for the purposes of esteeming others. Getting eyes off of self and onto other people. You see, a church, a community of believers, will be unified. If this is the makeup of our congregation, not a single person is looked up to and no one is looked down upon. That's a pretty good outlook. Or even better, if, if my desire is to prefer you and your desire is to prefer someone else and that person's desire is to prefer, we're like a circling firing squad of love and selflessness and other-centeredness. <laughs> Verse 5, 
Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, pause. In order to hammer home his point, Paul is going to now present Jesus as the ultimate example of such a humble lowliness of mind and other-centered attitude. Now, what's, what's, what's fascinating to me about the next few verses is that Paul, Paul commits the cardinal error in preaching. He reverses the order of something important. Paul begins with the application, and then he delivers his message. Most of the time in preaching, you want to give your message and close with an application, not Paul. He reverses things. He begins, let this mind, whose mind? The mind of Jesus be in you. That's the exhortation. That's the application. Let Jesus' mind be in you. And then he proceeds in the verses to follow to explain what the mind of Christ actually looks like. Verses 5 through 11 of Philippians 2, on a side note, are some of the most theologically profound verses in all of Scripture. In actuality, Greek scholars, of which I am not, say that these verses in the original language are so poetic, verses 5 through 11, so poetic, that they may have actually been a hymn that was sung by the early church. Now, in describing the mind of Christ, this is what Paul's about to do. He's about to relay for us, in a very like Cliff Notes version, Jesus' journey. His journey from heaven to earth, from earth to Calvary, and then from Calvary back to heaven. And Paul's point here is that the example we see in Jesus, the example established by Jesus, should be then the motivation for our lowliness of mind that yields Christian unity. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, verse 6, who, now he gets to the message, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, in case you're unaware of this, Jesus, Jesus existed before the incarnation. Like before Jesus was born to a virgin named Mary in Bethlehem, before he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger, Jesus existed. As the second member of the Holy Trinity, Jesus has always existed. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In actuality, this is a reality that Jesus himself affirms on numerous occasions. Let me just give you one example. In John 8, verses 56 through 59, Jesus is having this tit-for-tat with the religious establishment this argument. And then he makes this statement. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And when he saw it, he was glad. And so the Jews, looking at Jesus, a bit perplexed, they said to him, wait a second, you're not even like 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? So Jesus then doesn't say, well, you misunderstood what I'm saying. No, he says this, he said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And if you go to Exodus 3, when Moses needs a name for God, you know, so when he goes back to Egypt and they're like, who sent you? He had like some type of name tag. He says, who does he? he says, I am that I am. Coming from the burning bush. 
Jesus uses the same title for himself. Before Abraham was, I am. I, I, I got to give you one more example. One more example. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus praying the disciples. Later in the book of John, you'll, you'll see the story. Judas comes with the armed guards. They come to arrest Jesus. Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And in, in your translation, you, you'll see that it says, I am he, as the response. But in the original, the he, you'll find that it's italicized because it's not in the manuscript. It shouldn't be there. Because when Jesus, what is he says, who are you looking for, Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus' response, I am. And then what does John, who was there, say has happened? Boom, all of, all of them fell to the ground. He said, I am, and a power emitted, and boom, the soldiers, Judas, the disciples, everyone hit the turf. See, Jesus has always been. He's always existed. This is what, this is what Paul is saying. And then he says that Jesus has always existed, quote, in the form of God. Now, that sounds confusing. In the Greek, this word form, it literally refers to the external appearance. That's what the word means. The implications is that Jesus, before coming to earth, fully expressed in his person the very existence of God, the very being of God. Like What that means is that in the Old Testament, and if you were with us as we traveled through Genesis, we saw this often, when God would reveal himself in an external way, do you know who it is? It's Jesus. It's called a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. When Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fiery furnace, there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the angel of the Lord, all caps, who is standing preserving them? It's Jesus. Anytime you see an external manifestation, it's Jesus, because in the form of God. God has a form, and literally that form is Jesus. And yet... Even in such a glorified state, Paul says that Jesus, look at it, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Like, like what he means is that while Jesus has always existed as the physical manifestation of God, he didn't see this state as something to, to cling to. It's what the word robbery means. Like what's implied? Don't miss this. What's implied is that Jesus viewed your salvation and mine to be of more importance than his godly position in heaven. And how do we know that? We'll look at verse seven. But Jesus, the form of God, didn't consider it robbery, but Jesus made himself of no reputation. How? Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Recognizing the predicament that sinful man, you and I, found ourselves in, eternally separated from God and damned to remain in such a state, it was Jesus who, while being equal with God, made the decision to do something radical and drastic. This is what Paul's saying. He says that Jesus willingly chose to make himself of no reputation by stooping down from glory to earth in the likeness of men. Now, before we leave that particular thought, consider how dramatic and radical that really is. 
Like the almighty God of the universe, the creator and the sustainer of all things, the Alpha, the Omega, chose to leave heaven and become, of all things, a human being. You didn't have any choice. Jesus did. Jesus willingly cloaked himself with human flesh. He deliberately joined the very creation marred by sin, therefore subjecting himself to all its chaos. And why would Jesus do such a thing? Paul says that Jesus came in the likeness of men so that he might be able to take the form of a bondservant. Once again, form. What does that indicate? It indicates that Jesus, who was in the form of God, decides to present himself to humanity as the ultimate external personification of what it means to be a servant. You know, if coming as a man wasn't humbling enough for God, Jesus came to earth to specifically serve humanity, not to be served by humanity. And it's for that purpose that he came. That Jesus came on a mission. And what was the mission? To save you and I from sin. Now, as it pertains to the radical nature of what Paul is articulating, there are two important aspects to this statement you should keep in mind. First, what Paul says here, that this humbling of himself was not something that Jesus could be told or commanded to do. You need to understand that. Jesus came of his own free will. It wasn't an act he was forced into. Jesus, as God, made the decision to don humanity to his deity of his own volition. Which leads to the second point. It's important that you, read, that you not read more into Paul's words than what he's saying. The text is clear that in the act of making himself of no reputation, Jesus did what? He took the form of a bondservant. What that means is that in coming to earth as a man, Jesus did not lay aside any of his godly attributes. He added something too. As a man, Jesus was not any less God than he was beforehand. Like the only difference between the Jesus who had always been and the incarnate Christ was the addition of his humanity, not the subtraction of his deity. Paul doesn't say that. He took the form. Now, this is all known doctrinally as the hypostatic union. I don't have time to get into all the particulars of it, other than to say that the Bible teaches clearly that the incarnate Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. And yet, while the addition of his humanity was an act of pure selflessness on Jesus' part. Paul doesn't leave it there, does he? Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, what did Jesus do? He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. How absolutely remarkable this verse really is. Jesus was found. An appearance as a man. What that means is that Jesus was way more than most in his day understood him to be. They didn't know who they were nailing to the tree. 
Aside from this, not only did Jesus take on human flesh and live among us, but we're told he humbled himself to the point of death. And then Paul adds, even the death of the cross. In light of who Jesus really was, his willingness, not just to come from heaven to earth, but then to go from earth to Calvary, Jesus' willingness to be subjected to not just death, but the humiliation of a Roman crucifixion to Paul, he says that's shocking. That's mind-blowing. In Hebrews 12, verse 2, we're told that we should be looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now sat down at the right hand of God. And what was the joy that caused Jesus to endure the cross? The joy that motivated him. As he's hanging on that tree, the joy, joy. It was the very thought that through his sacrifice and his death that you and I would have a way to be saved. That was the joy set before him. You, you set before him is why he endured the cross and despising the shame. In 2 Corinthians 5.12, we're told, For God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. Why? That you and I, we, might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, Paul's point is that if we're struggling to esteem the needs of others, (laughs) we should consider Jesus and what he's done for us. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus' crucifixion was the ultimate act of humility, the ultimate act of selflessness, the ultimate act of others-centeredness. Though in the garden, Jesus would pray three times for the cup to pass, Paul is clear that Jesus became obedient to the will of his Father, The implications is that in his humanity, this was a difficult thing. He prayed. He struggled. But in the end, he submitted. He submitted himself. Why? Out of love for others. Verse 9, therefore. And whenever you see a therefore, ask, what's it there for? Paul's building on the thoughts he just laid out. God also has highly exalted Jesus. And given Jesus the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice that while it was Jesus who chose to humble himself, it was God the Father who does what? In the end, it was God who highly exalted Jesus. Jesus humbled himself, God exalted him. Highly exalted. It means to be exalted beyond measure. To be exalted to the highest level you possibly could be exalted to. Here's the lesson. Don't miss it. There is no need for you to be concerned with selfish ambition. When in loneliness of mind, God will exalt you. That he'll take care of you. Jesus humbled himself and what did God do? God exalted him. How incredible that we're told 
and his exaltation that Jesus has been given the name which is above every name. Now, I could spend 30 minutes just unpacking that statement. But if you don't believe this morning that the name of Jesus possesses power, please consider that it's the only name that even pagans use in vain. Like, you don't, you don't see a diehard hedonistic pagan hit their thumb with a hammer and say, Buddha! Why? Because there's no power. There's no release. Son of a Muhammad. There were a lot. You don't use that. Confucius. Joseph Smith. No power. But, but, but what name? Even atheists will say Jesus Christ in vain. Why? Because it does something. There's power behind it. Power in the name, the name which is above all other names. Then he adds that at that name, the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. He says, of those in heaven, which speaks of the segment of humanity who had already died and were presently before the throne of God. He then says, of those on earth, speaking of those who are living, that's us at the moment. And then he says, finally, of those under the earth, speaking of those who've already died in rejection of the revelation of God through Jesus. Paul says of this multitude of humanity that in addition to every knee bowing, ultimately, every tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. You know the interesting implications of this section of Scripture, what Paul's saying, is that in the end, the end of the age, when everything's written, when the story's told, when it's over, not only will every single person who has ever lived face Jesus and then submit to him because they will bow, but they will confess who Jesus really is. In a sense, everyone will end up a believer. There will be no doubters or skeptics. And yet in this moment, some will bow those knees to a Jesus who is their savior, while other will bow and confess to a Jesus who's judge. But make no bones about it. There will be no atheists in hell. Furthermore, what's astounding to me about Paul's description of Jesus' exaltation, and you might have missed this. I, I did. This was kind of a new revelation to me. But Jesus, check this out. He ultimately returns to heaven with more than he originally left with. Now, now, let me explain that. Not only does Jesus return to heaven with humanity forever added to his deity. In the book of Revelation, John, he describes the heavenly Jesus as a lamb led to the slaughter. That Jesus still bears the scars of the cross, even in glory. So Jesus returned to heaven with humanity. But you know, he also returned to glory, possessing two new identities. First, he returned as Christ, as the Messiah, as the anointed one, as the Savior. Something he wasn't before he came, but something that through the cross he attained, the title of Savior, 
but he's also Lord or Kyrios. To one in whom you belong. That's what the word means. It was a term for a slave to a master. To one in whom you belong. How? Because he paid a price to purchase you. Two things. It's, it's amazing. In the end, and this is to Paul's overarching point. What resulted from the humility and the other-centeredness of Jesus? Paul concludes that all of these things, the journey from heaven to earth, from the earth to Calvary, from Calvary back to heaven, all of these things, his other-centeredness, his lowliness of mind, ended up being to the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus humbled himself and preferred others, God was glorified in the process. Earlier in the study, I said the greatest foe to unity within a church community is selfishness. And I, and I communicated that it's impossible to be others-focused if you're me-centered. And that is absolutely true, but I do need to add a caveat. Because the reality is in some forms, an other's focus can be the very thing that gets us into trouble. Let me, let me explain. One of the main reasons that division often arises from a disunity among believers is that while we all understand our individual calling, most often we skirt the responsibility of being low in mind. Why? Well, he's not. I have to be selfishly motivated because I'd be the only one. And if I'm the only one, I'm in trouble. You see, what we do, we actually are others-focused and we excuse our own selfishness. Well, I have to be selfish at work. How am I going to get ahead? No one else cares about me. This is what, make, what, what Paul does here. It's so brilliant. Because what does he do? He says that the key to rejecting a me-centeredness and the motivation preferring others is not to compare yourself with one another, but to get your eyes fixated on whom? Let this mind be in you, which was in your wife? No. Which was in Christ Jesus. The motivation isn't each other. The motivation is Jesus and the example that he set. Hey, fella, husband, you should be sacrificing yourself for the preference of your wife and your children. Yeah, but Zach, you don't, like, she's not, she's not respecting me. I'm not getting any. She's not doing her stuff, so why should I? Whoa, 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 whoa. There will be divisions and disunity, and that's a problem. Because the responsibility of you, husband, to act is not what she is or isn't doing. Your example is whom? It should be Jesus. You see, the reality is that regardless of what the other person's doing, if I understand what Jesus has done for me, that should be all I need to demonstrate the same attributes to one another. But they're not, so what? When you weren't, Jesus still died? Like, aren't you glad Jesus didn't treat you based on, on you? 
That would have been a disaster. Like, please consider, did Jesus ever once allow what those around him were doing to distract him from his purpose and calling? The gospel story would have been radically different. He never did. This is why Paul presents Jesus' example of true selflessness and humility, directly following the challenge to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The only way that we can ever yield a Jesus culture within a church whereby the presence of Jesus is manifesting through the lives of believers who make up that church is for the example of Jesus and not those around us to be the primary motivator. In closing, I have to ask. I want you to imagine for just a minute. Imagine what a church would look like if everyone was more concerned with the needs of others above their own self-interests. Imagine what kind of light into a world that would be because there's nothing in this world that offers that. But beyond that question, and maybe even better, what would a church look like if everyone made the decision to die to self and allowed Jesus to manifest from their lives? (laughs) We need each other. That's the truth. We need each other. But if we're honest, What we really need most is Jesus manifesting in our lives through the interactions we have with one another. For I come to church and I need to encounter Jesus. And you know how that happens? Yes, his word. And there's the spirit. But I encounter Jesus through the conversations I have with you. That when I'm down and you provide an encouraging word, guess what? That's not you. That's Jesus manifesting from you to me. How awesome. How radical and revolutionary. How brilliant. I can submit to you if I see Jesus. Right? So, Father, with that task, we just...